360 degrees. High, high, 360 degrees. High, high, 306. 306. 360 degrees. High, high. Hey, good evening, everyone, and welcome to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine produced by members and graduates of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program, broadcasting from right here at KPFA in Huchin, occupied Ohlone territory, also known to you settlers out there as Berkeley, California. And we are excited for the return of one of our graduate apprentices tonight, Natalie Kilmer, who is starting work on a new podcast, West Coast Water Justice, that will directly cover the important issue of water and the rights of water and how it's controlled and the repercussions that it has on the environment and, of course, the fish and other wildlife that depend on fresh water here in California. On tonight's show, we'll talk with Natalie about what she's been up to since becoming a First Voice graduate We'll also hear a couple of interviews she is working on as part of her new podcast, West Coast Water Justice. She's working on that with Save California Salmon. And we'll have some great music from Snag Magazine's Connected Through the Water compilation CD. All that tonight on Full Circle. I am your host, Prewell and Franklin, coming to you from right here in downtown Antioch. This is Babe Miwok territory. Keep it locked right here to KPFA. All right, again, welcome to Full Circle, the weekly show produced by apprentices and graduates of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. My name is Free and Franklin, and I am your host tonight. I'm also a graduate of this program. And tonight, I am welcoming back our most recent First Voice graduate, Natalie Kilmer. And Natalie was the only person from her group to actually hang on to the apprenticeship program when in March of 2020, the state ordered a mandatory shelter in place for the first time due to COVID-19. And it was at that time that KPFA also shut its doors to most of us, non-essentials as we were deemed, and we were all asked to work from home if we could. Anyways, needless to say, with that, it was tough enough just to continue going on with life itself in those times, let alone continuing a radio broadcasting training program from home. But Natalie did it, and she graduated back in June. And at that time, it seemed for a moment the pandemic was lightning um, before the Delta variant. And we had a small gathering of five people where we honored Natalie for her work and for her commitment. And it was awesome for a little gathering. And uh, tonight, Natalie is returning to the airwaves for the first time since she graduated. And she is going to share with us an exciting project she is starting work on and an important project, if I say so. Welcome back, Natalie. It's great to have you here. Hey, Franklin. Thanks for having me. Now, first, before we get into this new project you are embarking on, tell us what it was that got you to actually stick with the apprenticeship program, even though everything around us was like rapidly changing uh, for everybody and, of course, for you as well. 
Well, I'd really, I'd wanted to do the apprenticeship with KPFA for a really long time and the fine, the timing finally worked out for me. So I definitely wasn't going to quit when the pandemic started. Uh, I ended up with some, a little bit of extra free time and it was really nice to have the apprenticeship as a creative outlet and still feel connected to the community. All right. It was awesome that um, you stuck around. So again, I want to personally thank you on behalf of myself and Mickey, my partner and co-director of the program. It was uh, really a blessing actually to have you stay on and help us carry through the shelter in place and the ongoing pandemic. And you stuck with us all the way till we got to finally start another group and keep this important training program going. So thank you again, Natalie. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And um, as you said, you stuck with the program and now you are about to put some of those skills you learned in the apprenticeship program to work. Tell us about the new project and your podcast, West Coast Water Justice with California Save the Salmon. So I'll just start off with sharing a little bit of background. I've been really passionate about water and rivers since I was a kid. Uh, I grew up in Placer County and our local politician there really wanted to dam up one of my favorite swimming holes in Auburn, California, um, on the American River. So since I was a kid, I've been learning all I can about watersheds and water rights in the West. And for the last 10 years, I've been working at the grassroots level, leading hands-on workshops, teaching folks how to reuse their water at their homes with gray water and rainwater design and implementation. So when I came to the apprenticeship at KPFA, I knew I wanted to interview people about water issues in California. I'm a big fan of learning through internship and apprenticeship. I've done it before, and it's just way more practical for me, um, and I learn way better with hands-on experience. So I use the apprenticeship to study and advocate for what's close to my heart, um, and then at a conference in the Sierra is a water conference that I attended the same year as the apprenticeship. I I was profoundly moved by some speakers from the ancestral guard from the Kaduk tribe. And they spoke about how the Klamath River is sick and the dams need to be removed. And when I got back home from the conference, I asked you, Frank, for some Native American connections on the Klamath to interview. Um, about the dam removals, and you connected me with Save California Salmon through, I think, Morningstar Gali, and I interviewed some folks from Save California Salmon, and then I interviewed folks on basically both sides of the issue, and it was really, I mean, I learned a ton. So I saw, you know, after I'd graduated, I guess just before I saw you guys um, for my graduation, I saw that Save California Salmon was looking for interns, so I pitched the idea of creating a podcast to help reach a lar larger audience. And now I'm, I'm actually getting paid to help amplify voices that need to be heard. And it's really an honor and a, a, like a dream come true for me. It's really awesome and a lot of hard work. Definitely. I'm so excited for you. This is like our dream as the apprenticeship program to, uh, to have this happen. So we're all so excited for you too. And as a fellow Californian myself and one who lives very close to the Delta that flows right by my house, um, West through Antioch onto Pittsburgh through, um, Venetia everywhere onto the San Francisco Bay. Tell me why this work is so important to you. Well, to me, 
water is overlooked, I think. Like, I think it's becoming more mainstream that people are, I mean, with climate change, it's just constantly a bigger challenge. And I, I just think it's so important. I can't even exaggerate it enough. <laughs> yeah, this is so important. Um, well, all right, Natalie, thanks again. Um, again, I'm very excited for the work you're embarking on. Let's take a short music break. And when we return, you can tell us about an interview you want to share with us that will be part of your new podcast series. So stay tuned, everyone, to KPFA in Full Circle. We'll be right back. Um, this is the song In the River by Ray Zaragoza. It's from the Connected Through the Water compilation. We'll be right back. There's gotta be some hope There's gotta be some hope There's gotta be some way For you to send your dogs away And to leave the land alone All right, welcome back to Full Circle right here on 94.1 KPFA and kpfa.org. That song you just heard was In the River by Ray Zaragoza. And you can find that song on Snag Magazine's compilation album, Connected Through the Water. And I will have a link to that awesome CD on our website just after the show. And that website is kpfaapprentice.org kpfaapprentice.org but now i want to throw it back to my special guest tonight first voice graduate apprentice natalie kilmer and we're here tonight celebrating natalie and the new work she's embarking on and that is the production of her new podcast west coast water justice covering california water issues natalie can you introduce your guest coming up in this interview we're about to hear and a little bit about what she'll be talking about 
Yeah, this is an interview with Regina Chikazola. She's the co-director of Save California Salmon, and she's she shares some history on the organization and what they've been working on with the Klamath Dam removals and why it's so important and how they've expanded their work throughout the state of California. All right, check it out. We'll be right back. My name is Regina Chikazola, and I work with Save California Salmon. I am the co-director of Save California Salmon. Okay. Who are the other co-directors? We are actually hiring a new co-director right now, but the former other co-director is a man named Tom Stokely. We'd just like to hear a little bit about Save California Salmon's mission and what the organization has been working on and why. So Save California Salmon is dedicated to having healthy salmon runs and clean water for all Californians. We come at it from a little bit of a different angle where we work a lot with people who are heavily dependent on healthy fisheries. So we work with a lot of Native American people. We work with a lot of fishermen. We think that people have the responsibility to protect the water and that people have the rights to have healthy, clean waterways and abundant fisheries. Can you tell us a little bit about how the organization was started and what you all are doing on the ground? Yeah, so Save California Salmon is run by a group of mainly Native American people and indigenous people and a lot of women. And so for every watershed that we work within, we work with the tribes of the area and we work with youth in the area. So a lot of our work is heavily focused on education. We have an advocacy and water protection in Native California curriculum in which we teach in high schools and universities. And we also work a lot on climate change issues and trying to make sure that traditional ecological knowledge and local tribal knowledge is used in fighting climate change and restoring watersheds. We look at watersheds through the whole watershed. Say right now, I live in the Klamath River, and the Klamath River starts with tributaries to Upper Klamath Lake. And so throughout the Klamath River watershed, there is actually five different tribes that all work on different parts of the ecosystem. So the Klamath tribe in the upper basin works on restoring Upper Klamath Lake and their sacred fish that are in the lake. And they work on water rights and making sure that there's enough water in the lake to keep fish from going extinct and being restored. And then as you go down the watershed, then you have the Krug tribe that's working to make sure that there's enough water within the watersheds so that salmon don't go extinct. They work a lot on the Scott and Shasta rivers. The Yurok tribe is below them. And they work on the Trinity River and the lower basin. And then the Hoopa Valley tribe works on restoring the Trinity River, which is diverted into the Sacramento watershed. So in other watersheds, it's kind of the same thing. We work with the different tribes within the different regions, and we want to empower communities in order to do things like take dams down and restore watersheds, restore estuaries to make sure that not only is the water clean, for drinking water sources and there's not agricultural chemicals or toxic algae within the watersheds, but also that there's enough water in the watersheds that fish are able to be restored in that watershed so that people can eat them and have healthy diets, but also so that, you know, people can be using their watersheds and interacting with them. A lot of the people we work with are youth, native youth. 
that have seen the decline of the salmon and seen the decline of water quality and are dealing with the extreme climate effects that we're having right now. So for instance, right now there is the Salmon River Watershed and Trinity River Watershed have huge fires on them. And every year we've been having bigger and bigger fires in our watershed and throughout the rest of California too. But in general, we work on climate, we work on water, and we work to empower people to work on climate and water issues. And we work to make sure that youth and Native people's voices are heard in climate and water decisions within the state of California. That's great. So how did you get involved? I've personally been living on the Klamath River since I was 18, so that's since 1997. I've been working that whole time on both forest, climate, and water issues. But in 2002, when the Klamath River fish kill happened, I started working more on water issues and on water supply issues and Klamath dam removal issues. And as time went on, we made Save California Salmon. I started working within other areas and we started building up the group so that we could support people in other areas. So now we do also, besides working in the Klamath River, we work on the Trinity River, the Sacramento River, the San Joaquin River, the Bay Delta, the Eel River, and the Smith River. And then also in the San Francisco Bay right now. Here in the Klamath River where I live, people are extremely dependent on the local forest and the local river for their food sources through salmon, eels, and sturgeon, and the forest for food such as acorns. And then also there's a lot of people who do weaving and things of that nature. But more than most other areas, people in rural Northern California and places like Upper Sacramento and the Klamath River are really on the front lines of the climate crisis, because as the climate crisis and the water crisis in the state get worse, we're seeing a lot more towns get burnt down. We're seeing large areas that are being deforested by fire. And we're also seeing more water being diverted out of the area for other watersheds and less water in the watersheds in general due to climate change. The diversions and climate change are making it so that there's less and less fish and food sources for people locally. And then the fire are making it so that we're losing towns, whole towns at this point. When I first moved here over 20 years ago, we never had stand replacing fires or very rarely had stand replacing fires or fires that burnt down towns. There were a lot more salmon and sturgeon and eels and people were able to sustain themselves off the land more which is really important because this region and a lot of other regions in Northern California don't have a lot of jobs. And the jobs that we did have were really based on fishing and uh, recreation. And so as time's gone by, we're losing the fishing. Our water is becoming more polluted with toxic algae due to diversions and dams. And the forests are burning down and people's homes are burning down. So it's making it harder and harder for people to live in these rural areas. And, you know, some people might be like, oh, well, why do you stay there? And maybe for people like me that are non-native, you can think that way. But we work with a lot of people who are tribal people and they're deeply committed to taking care of the salmon and the earth and the forest. And so there's not any leaving. We have to fight for the rivers and we have to fight for the forests. So Save California Salmon is all about supporting people in that fight. 
So just to kind of circle back, so like you're working with the tribes and obviously they're pretty savvy being on the front lines. I guess what's been the most effective way that you've been educating the public through the organization just about the importance of healthy rivers and the ecosystem? Well, one of the things that we've really been trying to get out to the public and to people in cities especially is that a lot of Californians' water supply comes from surface water in California. A lot of Southern California and the Bay Area get their water from the Bay Delta or from Sierra watersheds. The Trinity Reservoir and the Shasta Reservoir provide a lot of water for people too. And so if we're getting to a situation where salmon and fisheries can't survive within our surface water and it's becoming full of toxic algae, it's not that's something that only impacts tribes. It's something that impacts anyone who drinks water. The work that we're doing to take down dams and restore watersheds for salmon or in that the tribes are doing for salmon is also helping provide clean drinking water to the rest of the state. And it's not like there's some kind of issue that it's, you know, fish versus the cities and the city's water supplies. The cities, especially cities like San Francisco and in the Bay Area, are doing a lot to use less water. What we're seeing, though, is the people who are not doing a lot to use less water and the people who are doing a lot of the polluting of our surface water supply is actually large agriculture. And not like mom-pa agriculture, you know, that are growing some row crops and tomatoes in order to sell, to make a living. We're seeing large almond orchard taking a lot of our water or people flood irrigating for alfalfa and cows and things of that nature. And that's not a sustainable use of water. So we feel like one of the things that we need to do is come together with people in cities and come together with the people of California and say, we're dealing with climate change. We're having less and less water. Our water supplies are becoming more polluted, more toxic. And as time goes by, we need to look at who's using the water in the state and how it can be used sustainably. And we feel like we really need to work hard on changing the way that California looks at water and the way that it administers water rights. Because right now, the water rights system was set up in the early 1900s when people of color and women didn't even have the right to own lands. And um, a lot of cities didn't even exist when the water rights system was set up. So what we see is one almond orchard can have a water right that's way beyond a city. And that almond orchard's water right is prioritized over the water of a city. So we have right now large rice farmers that are getting water, including water from Shasta Reservoir, which is at 33%. And then we have cities that are running out of water and towns that are running out of water. And that's not the way that we're going to be able to have a sustainable future in light of climate change. We need to look at what's reasonable Um, what crops are being exported, where water does not need to be used, say, in like the western San Joaquin Valley, which is pretty much desert that has toxic soils. And those lands that water shouldn't be going to can maybe be retired in order so that our salmon and our cities have the water that they need. Specifically there, you're talking about the Westlands, is that right? 
Um, well, Westlands is not the only people that own land in the Western San Joaquin Valley. There's other water districts there also, but Westlands is definitely one that needs to retire a lot of lands. And it's not just a Westlands problem. We have the Emerson family in the Shasta River watershed, for instance, that has a massive water right and uses it to flood irrigate cow pasture um, and illegally builds dams. And then meanwhile, the river goes dry below that. And then there are people who don't have any water and then there are salmon that die in the river because the water goes dry. So while Westlands is a big problem in these large water districts in places like the Western San Joaquin Valley, there are huge problems. The water rights system in general in California is a huge problem in it. Every single watershed deals with it. And it's something that in light of climate change needs to be changed. And that's besides our dam removal work. That's probably one of our biggest campaigns right now is getting California to change its system of water rights to be equitable and just. That's a big, big one there. Did you want to talk about the hearing process? Yeah, sure. So I'll get a little bit into the background. For the last 20 years, we've been fighting to take down four dams on the Klamath River that are owned by Pacific Power or Pacific Core Energy. And Pacific Core Energy was owned until very recently by Berkshire Hathaway. And Berkshire Hathaway is owned by Warren Buffett. And so recently, the dams, the Klamath dams were transferred to the Klamath River Renewal Corporation for the purpose of taking them down. There was just FERC hearings that were about the process of taking the dams down and the surrendering of the dams for removal. And we did engage in that. That was just a scoping hearing that just happened, which is the first step in a NEPA process. So um, what happens is they take input on scoping, which is what are the issues around the Klamath Dam removal process. And then next they'll have an EIS um, and then after the EIS, there'll be a decision notice. But um, in this particular case, we've already had two separate federal processes and two separate state processes looking into Klamath Dam removal, dealing with all of the different scientific studies, um, water quality issues, salmon issues, and what every study, and including um, power issues, because these dams do not produce very much power. So actually keeping them in place would have cost more money than removing them. So we have 20 years of studies behind us saying Klamath Dam removal is absolutely the best thing that can happen for every single possible issue. So for bringing back salmon, best thing that can happen for water quality, best thing that can happen for power grid and power supply issues as far as making sure that people are not paying more money for their power, dam removal is the best thing that can happen. So that's all together. But something else I wanted to explain is that the reason why Pacific Corps and Berkshire Hathaway decided to give the dams over to the Klamath River Renewal Corporation is because it's the best business decision possible for them. It protects their ratepayers. It protects their stockholders. It is the decision that the company wants. Economically, it was always the best decision. But it also took about 15 years of community organizing, direct action, water quality monitoring, scientific advocacy, legal advocacy to get to this point. The dams were first owned by a power company called Scottish Power. The tribes actually went to Scotland when the license came up for renewal and protested at a Scottish Power board meeting. 
And then after that, Scottish Power ended up selling Pacific Core to Berkshire Hathaway, which is Warren Buffett's company. And every year for three years in a row, that Berkshire Hathaway had their yearly board meeting, which they call the Woodstock of Capitalism, because 20,000 people go to Omaha, Nebraska and kind of celebrate Warren Buffett and capitalism as part of this process. Berkshire Hathaway is a massive company. They own Geico. They own power plants throughout the United States. They own diamond mines. They own jewelry stores. They own a lot of restaurants. They have holdings everywhere. Warren Buffett was the richest man in the world when we started going to the Berkshire Hathaway shareholders meeting. And um, now he, I think he's probably in, within this top 10 still. Bill Gates is actually part of the board of Berkshire Hathaway through the Gates Foundation. So this was really the richest people in the world that were owning the Klamath Dams, which produced very little power, but stopped fish from migrating through half of the river system and created toxic algae and fish diseases. This holding made almost no money for Berkshire Hathaway, but every year that they had their yearly shareholders meeting for three years in a row, the Klamath River tribes and supporters and fishermen would go and protest Warren Buffett's shareholders meeting. Actually, some of them became shareholders and would go to the meeting and ask questions. Why don't you finally take down the Klamath dams? Why aren't you respecting native cultures? Why are you okay with taking down the West Coast fishing industry? Because the Klamath River salmon does decide how many fish are caught in the ocean every year. And we've had our fishery shut down now for, I think, something like six out of the last 20 years completely and very low runs of salmon other years. And a lot of that is directly related to the Klamath dams. And so people from the river, which is this is a very small rural area, would go every year to Omaha, Nebraska and stand up to Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and say, you need to take these dams down. And they would go to Portland, Oregon, and they would talk to Pacific Corps there and say, you need to take these dams down. They would go meet with the governor of California, with the governor of Oregon. There was litigation. There was clean water action. There's tribal people that are out on the river documenting every salmon that's killed because of the dams. It's just really been almost 20 years of activism on every single front in order to get these dams down. And so I'm very proud of our community and how hard they work to make this happen. It's best economic decision. It's the best environmental decision. But I really don't believe that if people weren't making their voices heard and fighting to make sure the public knew that, that these dams would be coming down. I haven't heard all that yet. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, you're welcome. I think it's an important part of the story. Yeah, that's really awesome. I love that. What do you want the public to know so they can help out? The next thing that will happen through the FERC process, FERC is the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. They will be putting out an environmental impact statement on Klamath Dam removal. And so we will be asking people to comment for the dams to come down as part of that process and for FERC to actually approve the license for surrender and removal. So we will be putting out action alerts on that for people to engage. Then hopefully after that, then we'll be getting a decision from FERC. One of the most important things right now is for FERC to move in a very quick way. The Klamath dams were supposed to come down in 2020, and now we're looking at possibly 2023. And I don't think it can be emphasized enough how much of the salmon we've lost through this process. I think originally we were hoping the dams were going to come down in 2016, but every year that we have a drought right now, 
we're losing about 90% of the juvenile salmon and they are dying due to a fish disease that's caused from these dams. So what happens is that there's an algae that hosts the polychaetes that spreads the diseases through the salmon. And the hot spot for that disease and for the algae is right below the dams. And every year that hot spot gets longer and longer, partially because of climate change, but also because the area under the dams is not being scoured out of that algae. There's not water being released in most years that allows the river to act like a natural water system. And so we're getting more and more algae, more polychaetes. And every drought year, we're losing a about 90% of our juvenile salmon. This year, the river is also extremely warm and the dams really warm up the river a lot more. And so we could be looking at losing adult salmon too. They actually did have to just release some water into the Trinity and Klamath River to stop Spring Chinook from having a Spring Chinook kill. And the Spring Chinook numbers for even adult spring chinook are down to less than 100 wild spring chinook left in our ecosystem in the Klamath River. And this was the main run of salmon that was above the Klamath dams. So if we don't move quickly, we might not have enough spring chinook left in our system in order to actually populate the area above the dams. So we definitely need people to stay involved. We definitely need people to be calling in and getting involved in the FERC process and saying we need these dams removed. But also we need people to be saying we need these dams removed now. Since the FERC relicensing process started, it's been almost 20 years. And since we started talking and doing analysis of dam removal, it's been over 12 years. And within that time, we've lost the majority of our salmon in the river. And our salmon runs have gone down by more than tens of thousands of fish. And we're down to less than 100 wild spring chinook salmon, which is an extremely important food source to the tribes and in an extremely important cultural species. A lot of the ceremonies that happen on the Klamath River are spring salmon ceremonies. So it really lets you know how important this run of salmon is. And if we don't get these dams down immediately, we're going to lose this whole species. And beyond that, the fish that are dying, the juvenile fish that are dying in the river are fall salmon and coho salmon. And coho salmon is listed as an endangered species. And the fall Chinook salmon is the most important species right now that the tribes eat, but also to the West Coast fishery. So we're looking at losing multiple runs of salmon and the whole West Coast salmon industry and the most important food source to the three tribes in the Lower Klamath if this process does not go forward in a quick manner. The next step in the FERC hearings is for FERC to hear that we need to move really quickly to get these dams down, because if not, we're going to lose the salmon in the river and all of the jobs and economies that rely on them. How can we learn more? And if you just want to share social media or any other websites to direct people to or events? Of course. Yeah. So our website is californiasalmon.org. We have a Facebook page, Save California Salmon. We're on Twitter at California Salmon, and we are on Instagram at California Rivers. Also, there's the Klamath River Renewal Corporation has a website, and they are the ones who are taking the Klamath dams down. So um, that's a good place to look at any studies or media that are directly related to the process of dam removal. And there's another website, I think it's called Bring the Salmon Home. That also can be followed, but all of it's linked to at our website, which is californiasalmon.org. Welcome back to Full Circle right here on 94.1 FM, KPFA, and 
kpfa.org. I am Free Will and Franklin, and you just heard my special guest tonight, First Voice graduate apprentice Natalie Kilmer, and she was interviewing Regina Chickazola of Save California Salmon. Thanks again, Natalie, for that great information. We're going to take another music break again from the Connected Through the Water compilation CD put out by Snag Magazine. This is Black Snakes by Prolific the Rapper with A Tribe Called Red. Check it out on KPFA Full Circle. One family, if we don't stand who will on earth. The wind comes in four corners, four directions, four colors. And death rides on four horsemen, a black snake with some black tanks. Uh, how much money do these companies need to make? They could drop their product, but they wanna save a buck. Already extracted billions, when is enough enough? I used to be in the oil fields, getting paid. But I quit, cause oil water I can't drink. Look down and see Kamimi La die in the mud. I looked up and told myself that enough's enough. Money does not own my soul, living comfortable. It's not in my plans, my hands in the sand. Some things worth more than gold. Some things they can't be sold. Some things can't be replaced. She's your mother. The fresh water is her veins. going on have we all lost our minds every human needs clean water to survive we're sorry your call cannot be called love is the strongest this path is the hardest but if we were strong enough to do it we wouldn't see it our prayers would not be needed this movement's very needed indigenous wisdom unheeded and sacred things depleted i'm mexicano malacota and i'm white too i'm mixed with everyone so part of me's just like you every group of human beings shares the same stars and if the earth is not your mother are you from mars All right, welcome back to Full Circle here on 94.1 FM KPFA. You just heard Black Snakes by Prolific the Rapper with A Tribe Called Red. This song is also part of the Connected Through Water CD from Snag Magazine. And just a reminder, I will have a link to the official video and to Snag Magazine on our website, kpfaapprentice.org, just after the show tonight. But now I want to throw it back to my special guest tonight here, Natalie Kilmer, graduate apprentice. Um, Yeah, she just graduated from the First Voice Apprenticeship Program back in June and is now putting her skills to work. She is doing that by working with Save California Salmon and producing a new podcast called West Coast Water Justice. And tonight she's been sharing some of the interviews that will be a part of her first episodes. Um, Natalie, one thing I noticed in a lot of these movements to protect the water and the land and other environmental issues is the indigenous people have really stepped up to take the front lines. And your next interview is one such person. Can you briefly introduce your uh, next guest coming up and what she'll be talking about? Yeah, this this interview is with Dr. Kutcha Rizlingbaldi. 
Um, she's part of the Hoopa, Karuk, and Yurok tribe and enrolled in the Hoopa Valley tribe. Kutcha is department chair and associate professor of Native American studies at Humboldt State University. Kutcha is also the executive director of the Native Women's Collective. In this interview, Kutcha shares her and her family's experience in the river basin over the years and the changes since colonization. She also shares about the fish kill of 2002. And just to give a quick background on the fish kill, because I, I personally wasn't savvy on it, uh, the fish kill in 2002 was caused by low flows that were due to the Bush administration's overriding of the biological opinion. And that's basically a flow-based science plan to keep the coho salmon from going extinct under the Endangered Species Act. So Bush sided with the farmers that were vandalizing the diversion structures uh, on the river and actually sent his Secretary of Interior to participate in the bucket brigade they organized. Basically, breaking the law for white landowners was encouraged. This has curtain importance because the Bundy family currently tried to recreate the situation this year in the Klamath and failed. And Trump did the same thing as far as overriding and interfering with the science on the biological opinion on the Sacramento. And that caused the winter run fish kill this year. The other thing I want to mention is that the fish kill happened on the Yurik Reservation and was especially devastating to the local people that consider the fish their relatives. So in the future, we're going to do another podcast that focuses on this, but I just wanted to give everybody a little bit of background. Yeah, a lot of people don't really know about um, the fish and the awful sight of the hundreds and even thousands of fish just um, laying and dying on the shores. And a lot of it was due to um, not enough water for the fish. Thank you for bringing some awareness to this. Let's check out this next uh, sneak peek interview from the new podcast, West Coast Water Justice with Natalie Kilmer. We'll be right back. I am Dr. Kutcher Risling-Baldi. I am an associate professor and department chair of Native American Studies at Humboldt State University. I'm also Hoopa, Yurok, and Karuk, and enrolled in the Hoopa Valley Tribe. Can you share how the Trinity and Klamath River ecosystems changed after colonization? And how was your ancestors' experience different from yours? It's really interesting because I grew up, and I don't remember, I don't remember it specifically, but I remember learning and talking to people about the way they talk about the river and the fish is really that you used to be able to, like the fish during the, the spawning season and when the salmon were returning to the Trinity River were so, there were so many of them. They say that you could walk along the backs of the salmon across the river if you wanted to. It was so full of salmon. And that it was such a like a really vibrant and community based time. There was a lot of fishing that was happening and elders always had access to fish and young people always had access to salmon. And it was really like a way of bringing community together. I grew up learning about salmon. And I remember my dad, when I was really young, teaching me how to fillet fish and how to like how to get a fish and care for it so that you could have it ready to eat. And we were always praying for the salmon praying for the water it was part of our world renewal ceremonies to sort of pray and make sure that the water was going to be 
healthy, that the salmon were going to be safe, that everything would return. And so I think that there was a lot of uh, community and care that was built into how we cared for each other because we had this access to our fish, which is such an important part of who we are. This was always the case prior to colonization, but I think we had been through so much where people tried to prevent us from being able to access our indigenous foods. It's like a tool of colonization to separate indigenous peoples from their foods. There's something about the sort of connection that we have that they wanted to break, you know, in order to try to assimilate us or destroy us. And they really did. I mean, even in the gold rush, one of the things that they did, aside from trying to sort of out and out genocide native peoples, was they they are also attempting an, an ecocide of our more than human relatives of our natural resources. And so the salmon are affected during the gold rush in this way of being overfished, overharvested. There's pictures you can see of people posing with thousands of dead fish just on the shores that they're catching. You have people who immediately start running canneries and all these kinds of things and so trying to make money off of our fish. And you see an over-harvesting and an overfishing in multiple areas, especially like in the San Francisco Bay Area, they talk about them, you know, harvesting the salmon to the point of extinction uh, in the Bay Area and the ways in which salmon has had to recover. They do the same thing in our region in the Gold Rush. They really try to take as much as possible. The Gold Rush is an environmental destruction just as at the same time that they're trying to commit this genocide against Native peoples. And I think that we then come out of that. And despite the fact that they try to destroy this area, they try to destroy the land, they try to destroy the people, we still have this connection and we still have a land and a, and a river and an area that cares for us and provides us things that we need. And our connection to food, our connection to salmon has been a big part of that. When I was growing up, I learned all of that connection. And I think that what happened when I was younger during the Klamath River fish kill, and that was in 2002, is it kind of highlighted a sense of, I mean, I've heard a lot of people, elders especially, describe it as like a sense of apocalypse. So to give some background for listeners about the fish kill, it was in 2002, in the fall, when salmon were returning home to spawn in the Klamath and Trinity Rivers. Before being able to spawn, these salmon encountered low water flows and higher than normal temperatures resulting in a mass infection of parasites. Over 34,000 adult fall Chinook salmon were found dead along the shores of the Klamath River. If you were going to imagine what the end of the world looked like, you would imagine thousands upon thousands of dead fish on the shores of the Klamath River, right? You would imagine a fish kill of, of such epic proportions that, I mean, you would walk out and all you would see were carcasses of fish. At that point, how do you see a future when the world itself is in such disarray and imbalance that these fish could die? Weirdly, the fish kill, I think in a way, we felt a sense of responsibility for it, even though it had nothing to do with tribal peoples. It was, it was, a, it was because of the policy of the government. It was because of the policies of agencies that valued the seizure of water for, you know, uses like recreational purposes over the life of the salmon that resulted in this like really horrific, essentially like massacre of fish. But I think Native people felt kind of responsible to that. Like, like what could we have done or how could we have prevented it? I think it, it woke something up in a number of us young people at the time who could not 
understand just the depth of hurt. It was one of the first times in my sort of like young adult life that I remember seeing my grandfather cry. He was a very strong, like stolid man, but he was crying because it was a reminder that the current policies and laws don't actually protect us and actually really devalue us enough that they would allow something like this to happen. I think as a result of that, you saw an awakening of people who no longer were going to wait or ask for what needed to happen on these rivers, but instead a sense of like urgency that if this ecosystem is faltering in this way, if it's so unbalanced, then we have to do something. And that type of strength and resiliency, that comes from like a really long time of like what we've had to put up with from the first invasion contact all the way through the gold rush, all the way through all these other rushes, the timber rush and the mineral rush and all the things they've tried to, the boarding schools, like everything that comes up. And then you have this fish kill. I think that we were, we were really clear, like we had to we had to be the ones that were the voices for the salmon. We had to be the ones that fought for our more than human relatives. Salmon had always been there for us. It had always cared for us. It had always nourished us. It had always provided a connection for us to our waters and our homelands. Salmon never asked of us very much, but to live in cooperation with them you know, we we take care of this environment, they take care of the environment, we work together. And now we were like, you know what, this is our job now. We're going to fight for and speak with and speak on behalf of the salmon because that's what's important. And I think that fighting that fight has been long, but I don't think Native people in general ever enter into a fight like that with the idea that maybe that it's going to happen immediately. I think some of us always enter into it like this might not actually happen in my lifetime, but I know, I know that it's setting up something really important for the, for the next generations. So I have to fight this fight, even if it feels impossible. And I think having these conversations about dam removal, people will tend to tell you dam removal is not possible. Dam removal is going to never happen. Dam removal is not something that people can envision or understand. But one, I don't know if we have an option anymore. I think dam removal is the only thing that's that's going to get us started in what we need to protect our ecosystems. But two, maybe it's not just for us. Maybe we have to start having these conversations now so that dam removal can happen. And if it doesn't happen in, you know, right away, it doesn't mean it's not worth fighting that fight. And I think Native people have always thought like that. You know, people will tell them, you're up against too many things. You're up against a whole governmental system that is not designed to protect you or your ecosystem or your life. Or We are still debating at a national level if there's climate change. I feel like the whole system's not set up to do that, but that doesn't mean that Native people aren't going to fight and they're not going to be there to stand up for what needs to happen, especially when it comes to the health of our earth and our salmon and, and our lands. And I think that's something that has been instilled in Hoopa from the very beginning if you look at our history post-colonization, well, not post, we're still in the midst of colonization, but post this sort of like invasion contact with, with what becomes, you know, sort of like the settler colonial mentality. We were always people who were thinking about this as a long-term negotiation of what we needed to do to make sure that we could hold on to our ceremonies, our culture, our language. And Hoopa people were really good at negotiating that, but also making sure that we had things to carry forward. We were always fighting 
for our fish. We were always fighting for our lands. We were always saying the things that needed to be said. We come from such a long line of people who were like, we're not going to stop. We're not going to just sort of fold over and, and say, nope, this is the end of uh, Hoopa people. Instead, we're going to always, always make sure that we are maintaining our sovereignty, our self-determination. We did that all the time. And whether that be court cases or the refusal of us to move, they tried to remove us in the 1800s from our valley and we refused to go. Or the wars that we fought, we actually fought a war against the federal government at a point in the 1800s so that they would keep their promise that we could stay in our valley with our river. Our sort of refusal to be silent about these issues of pushing things through court cases, of showing up in people's spaces. I think that Native people all over this region have done that. I think Hoopa people have done that. I think we've maintained and understood that as part of what needs to happen, our resistance is an important part of how we're going to make sure that this earth is healthy enough that we can build better futures. And I think holding steadfastly to those beliefs, we're starting to see on a bigger scale that Native people are a really important part of how we're going to build climate resiliency. We have so much and such a long-term knowledge of this place that we are going to be able to build something that will help us to become climate resilient in a way that actually matters so that we can be here for the next thousands upon thousands of generations. And I think coming full circle in that way has been an important demonstration of why we kept fighting so hard, why we pushed forward things that I think sometimes people would say, that's not going to be possible. Well, we tried it anyway, and we're still pushing for dam removal, even if people don't think it could be possible. I think I see a future I think I see a future with no dams. I think I can feel it. I think I know it. I know it well enough to know that if we start saying it out loud right now, maybe we can start helping people to envision that too. And then we can make it possible because nothing is possible or can become possible until we say it, till we make it come into being by saying there could be a world without dams. And then I think we have to remind ourselves that impossible things have happened in our lifetime. There have been so many impossible things that have already happened. Land being returned to Native peoples that I think that they would have been told 10, 20 years ago would never be returned is being returned. Dams are being taken down throughout the world. There's a Native woman in charge of the Department of the Interior, Deb Holland. I have told people in several spaces, could you imagine like if we could travel back in time and go talk to Thomas Jefferson and just be like, hey, Thomas Jefferson, in 2021, there's going to be a Native woman in charge of the Department of the Interior. She's not only going to be in charge of the Bureau of Land Management, she's also going to be in charge of the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So don't worry. Everything's great. We're going to have a Native woman in charge. I think Thomas Jefferson would look at you and say, that's impossible. And that will never happen. And that's not anything that I could ever envision or picture. And you're telling me that's in 2021? that's like so far away. Who cares? Like it's so far away. Like he would not even be able to understand where we're at right now. He would think it was impossible. Well, guess what? It's 2021. So we're living in the future and we have a native woman in charge of the department of the interior. So yeah, impossible things are happening in our lifetime. So I don't think it's impossible. And I don't think we get to say things are impossible anymore. I think what we have to say is 
what we can envision to be possible and then work for that, even if we don't know if we're going to see it in our lifetime, it'll happen. There will be a world without dams. The salmon will run. We will make sure that those things happen. All right. You're listening to Full Circle right here on 94.1 FM KPFA and worldwide at kpfa.org. That was my special guest tonight, First Voice graduate apprentice Natalie Kilmer, and she was speaking with um, Dr. Kutcha Risling Baldy. And these interviews we've been featuring tonight are part of Natalie's new podcast that's going to be coming out soon, West Coast Water Justice. And she is working on this as a collaboration with California Save the Salmon. And we're getting uh, really low on time tonight, Natalie. But before we wrap up, first, let me congratulate you and, of course, offer my assistance to you if you need help out there. So if you need me, let me know. And, um, yes, we are very excited. So, Natalie, tell us again about um, Save California Salmon, how we can support them, and, of course, the salmon. Um, So, like, throw us the website and um, tell us when you think the podcast will be launching. Yeah. So you can find uh, Save California Salmon at savecaliforniasalmon.org. Also, you can find them at www.californiawaterjustice.org. Or, and there's some petitions that you can sign um, that hopefully we can link at the end of the show. Um, and also for the podcast, we're going to release it officially on September 26th, World Rivers Day. So check out our link and you can follow and then listen you're on your favorite podcast app. Um, but the podcast website will be westcoastwaterjustice.org, or you can also find it through californiasalmon.org. Again, that is the voice of First Voice graduate Natalie Kilmer. She's the producer of the soon-to-launch podcast, West Coast Water Justice. You'll be able to find that on the Save California Salmon website, californiasalmon.org. Natalie, thanks again so much for coming on tonight to uh, promote your exciting new work. Thank you for having me, Frank, and thank the whole KPFA team. I really appreciate being an apprentice. Yes, and of course, we appreciate having you. But that does bring us to the end of tonight's show. Remember to check out our website, kpfaapprentice.org, just after the show tonight for important links and information related to tonight's show. And again, shout out to my special guest, graduate apprentice Natalie Kilmer. Natalie is the latest First Voice graduate. And just FYI, we are currently searching for the next group of First Voice apprentices. If you are interested in applying for the program, you can do so at kpfaapprentice.org and just click on the Apply tab. You can also call 510-848-848. 6767 extension 235 and leave your address and we will mail you an application thanks for listening tonight everyone and remember while you're out there please protect your health and your humanity and stay tuned because up next is la onda bajita good night everyone <laughs>